Welcome to Beyond Accommodations at Disability U. My name is Christina Baker, and today my guests are Percy and Vincent. So now you guys can each just go and introduce yourselves. Well, I'm Vincent. I'm a third-year student majoring in linguistics, and I'm autistic. I'm Percy. He, him, by the way. I am a, also a third-year student. I majored in visual art and media design, and I'm autistic, and I have ADHD. Executive dysfunction refers to difficulty with stuff like memory, attention, flexible thinking, and managing your time and your responsibilities. This is often present in people with most mental illnesses and a lot of different disabilities, and it is the main symptom of ADHD. So do you guys just want to describe your disability, like your history of your diagnosis, what happened in the time you've been in school, what accommodations, etc.? So I was diagnosed pretty early. I was diagnosed in first grade after I had moved from Catholic school to public school. My teacher just recommended that I got tested and I got diagnosed with autism. And then I kind of just went through a bunch of different psychiatrists, a bunch of different therapists, had an IEP up until eighth grade. Couldn't really tell you much of the accommodations up until college, mostly because they were mostly meant to help the teachers than they were to help me, honestly. But now I use flexibility on due dates and attendance in class. I just think that we should stay here for people who might not be aware. An IEP stands for Individualized Education Plan, and students who have a disability will get them. They're like required by law for teachers to follow them under the Individuals with Disability and Education Act. So in terms of when I was diagnosed, I was not diagnosed with ADHD until I was 16 after my dad was diagnosed. I am like assigned to female at birth, so it is like more difficult for us to get diagnosed with ADHD. It's also difficult for us to get diagnosed with autism, which I was uh, diagnosed with about a year after that. In terms of accommodations, I should have probably asked for them in high school. I did not. And currently in college, I should also probably ask for some, but I do not. I do take medication for my ADHD, and I'm finally on like a correct medication and a correct dosage as of like a month ago. So that's been working out great for me. But in terms of IEPs, I do not have them. <laughs> and what are some times when in your classes you noticed that the method of instruction or the way the class was operating seemed to be designed with you not in mind? Oh, uh, give me a second to think. Okay. <laughs> I guess just like, when lectures, whether they're you know middle school, high school, or college, if they're very verbal only, they don't have any visuals, obviously that could be inconvenient for a neurotypical person as well. But for me specifically, with my ADHD and my autism, just the lack of stimulation provided <laughs> is not great. It's a very small thing, but it really has an effect on how well I can learn. Yeah, um, and can you explain at this point, I just think it's probably helpful because a lot of people don't, know much about autism. Can you explain what you mean by the level of stimulation isn't adequate for you? Yeah, of course. So for people with autism, autistic people, stimulation would mean like your senses. So a, a lot of time you, you hear it in the context of we get overstimulated, like if uh, things are too loud, something has too strong of a taste, something feels wrong. If, if something has a bad texture, that can be overstimulating. But in, in context of not enough stimulation, understimulation would also be a thing. So, like, especially when you have when you have comorbid ADHD and autism, it can really affect how understimulated you get and how it's just so hard to pay attention when there is not enough information to focus on. So it actually kind of you'll start to focus on background things. Yes, uh, exactly. if you if you don't have enough actual substantive material in the classroom to focus on you'll start focusing on like the clock ticking in the background or the heater humming and you start basically finding things to get distracted by without even realizing it. Yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, I, I would say mostly for me what I, when I noticed in elementary school, my problem was less with academics and more with like social and 
student expectation basically so i would have trouble when we were told to do things and i didn't understand why we were doing them for me i just i would ask well why and then adults would get offended by my curiosity <laughs> evidently so mostly for me it was when i realized that there was this expectation that i would just do things without really understanding what i was doing and that for me was just never really comfortable or the way my brain worked how did your teachers react to your needs? I can give an example. When I was in eighth grade, I had this history teacher. I didn't like him very much for a number of reasons, but the main one was I would you know, draw to stimulate myself during class and to have something to focus on in addition to what he was lecturing about and you know, droning on about. Otherwise, I could not register his words, similar to you know, what we talked about earlier. I would uh, get in trouble with him for drawing and for you know not paying attention. I'm saying that in, in quotes because I was paying attention. Obviously, like I wasn't diagnosed then. I couldn't ask for accommodations, and I wasn't assertive enough to say anything. But it did suck to have my one outlet of stimulation of something that was helping me pay attention having that taken away by a teacher who didn't really get it. I guess something that occurs to me about that anecdote is the lack of agency that you had. And I feel like this also pertains to what Vincent was saying earlier about not understanding why instructions were given. This is probably more of a thing for like all students rather than just autistic students. But in our current education system, there's a lot of pressure on students to do what they're told and they don't really have any agency to respond to that. The teacher might ask you to do something, but it's implied that you don't have an option either way. And they just were willing to disregard you drawing, which wasn't really interrupting anything, and you didn't get a chance to explain yourself. Yes, exactly. You could also argue that teachers often teach the same way for every student, and it's not very individualized. It's granted, they don't have much wiggle room when it's such a large class, but it does suck that it has to be that way. Yeah, and that they're not really asking you what the best way you would learn is. I would say definitely the lack of agency is a big thing that I've noticed in the past. I haven't actually had any negative reactions from professors or teachers once I kind of got to high school and I was able to say like, hey, here's what I need from you. What do you need from me? And we were able to just work it out together. That it's always worked out fine. It was in the beginning where they were like, okay, we have this kid with autism. Here's what we need to do to allegedly help him. Why is he not accepting our help? <laughs> and that became the real struggle was they ironically took a disability that's characterized with highly individualized symptoms. And then instead of saying, oh, he just doesn't fit into this like regular student box. Like, let's fix. They just tried to put me in a different box <laughs> and they just made the problem from square one again. So that was definitely my experience. Yeah. And earlier we were talking about how people don't understand that autism is a sensory processing disorder and that you have different reactions to sensory input than average people and that's what a lot of the symptoms of the disability stem from. I am assuming that your teachers didn't know that either. Can you talk about whether you ever noticed that in class beyond what you've already mentioned and how you think it would be different if your teachers had understood what autism was? I could actually talk about this, but even though, you know, I wasn't diagnosed, I still experienced, I won't call it discrimination per se, but it was a negative experience with one of my teachers in high school. She was a very nice lady, but she didn't like subtitles on her movies. So we were watching a movie during class, and multiple students asked, hey, would you mind turning the subtitles on so we can better understand the movie? And she said, well, I don't really want the subtitles on, so I'm not going to turn it on, but I will turn the volume up as if that would help us register the words better. So then multiple of us had sat there the entire class with the volume blasting in our ears and still not able to understand any of the words. So that was kind of a time when a teacher didn't really understand my needs with my sensory issues. I would say I haven't necessarily had an experience similar to that in particular, but I, I feel like what was really interesting is I don't actually know for a fact if my teachers in high school actually knew that I had autism because the paper trail for my disability ended in eighth grade for me. So I genuinely don't know if they even knew I was autistic. Uh -huh. 
I know in college they're not supposed to know. They're just in supposed to know what your know, accommodations they just know that you are. You have an accommodation. Yeah. But up through twelfth grade, you don't. You aren't afforded that expectation of privacy between you and your teachers, and you're also never afforded the opportunity to explain to your teachers, from your point of view, what your issues are. They are always pretty much approaching you with the issue. I know that something that I read a lot from like disability activists whenever I'm reading about stuff is <coughs> a lot of stuff with disabilities, especially stuff like ADHD and autism, is created from the perspective of someone who's not the person with a disability. ADHD is a classic example that ADHD is called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And that's because those are the symptoms that are most visible to like a parent or a teacher. But if you ask someone with ADHD what their primary symptoms are, they probably wouldn't be like, well, I'm pretty hyperactive or like, I have trouble focusing. They would probably mention executive dysfunction, which is by far the most common symptom in ADHD and probably the one that impacts people's lives the most. I mean, that's also how diagnoses happen. They don't ask kids whether they feel like they have trouble doing their homework, whether they're experiencing executive dysfunction. Kids get diagnosed because they are disrupting in class or their teachers are noticing that they're not paying attention enough in class. And if your teachers don't feel that you do have ADHD, that can actually set back the diagnosis process for students. Now that unfortunately extends to treatment as well as <laughs> diagnosis because most of the well-studied treatments for especially disabilities that affect younger children are how do we make it look okay? And on that note of diagnosis and treatment being geared toward what symptoms are noticeable to outsiders rather than the person with a disability, that is also why autism and ADHD are extremely under-diagnosed in girls and women. And people assign female at birth who were, you know, female presenting when they were girls because, first of all, the way that children are socialized, it's much more encouraged for girls to be not disruptive. So, first of all, <laughs> girls aren't going to be as rowdy in class, and so their teachers aren't going to recommend them for diagnosis. And because ADHD was for so long stereotyped as a disorder for boys, and this goes for autism too, teachers aren't expecting their female students to have ADHD or autism. And so even if they do notice something that might seem like an ADHD or autism symptoms, many of them will just assume that it's not that because they don't even know that it's possible for girls to get ADHD or autism. Yes, I have ex absolutely experienced that as somebody who's like raised as a girl. I was raised and socialized as a girl up until when I came out at 13. Definitely there's this stereotype, this kind of box people want people with ADHD and autism to fit into where with ADHD they expect you to be this disruptive rowdy young boy who you know gets up out of his seat and fidgets the entire class and I obviously didn't fit into that and then with autism they expect you to be a young boy who's quiet or awkward and like loves trains loves mechanical things and obviously I'm an art major now I was never into like yeah it's not <laughs> not that many Autistic people are actually into, like, trains. It's, it's this gross stereotype. Like, good for you if you are, but the fact that the basis of diagnosis and teachers noticing and helping you to get treatment is based on these outdated, narrow ideals of what they think these disabilities to be. There's a end to this statement, but I don't know how to finish it. No, I've definitely been told by a doctor, like, this is what autistic people experience, and I've definitely looked them back in this eye and been like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, they only care about how it disrupts their lives. The same thing with how ADHD was named. It's named after how neurotypical people see it and how neurotypical people are bothered by it. Um, and the funny part is executive dysfunction is something that bothers neurotypical people when ADHD people have executive dysfunction. However, they just assume that it's a personal flaw on the part of people with ADHD and they're just being lazy. So that's not part of the name. Yeah. And then that belief also then extends to like, I've never met a person with ADHD who doesn't feel some sort of guilt. Yes, guilt. We always feel as if it's our fault that we can't do things. And the expectation all throughout schooling 
at least for me, was that like, oh, I am just doing something wrong. I can't finish my homework and it is my fault. When in reality, it is my brain that is dysfunctional. I am doing the best that I can with the mental capacity that I have. It's just the teachers and my brain chemicals that aren't helping. I've definitely heard people speculate. There's a serious question of how many symptoms of ADHD and autism are actually symptoms inherent to people with ADHD and autism and how many of them are trauma responses based on the trauma, the mistreatment, the guilting that people with ADHD and autism experience when they are growing up that there's really not many autistic people who weren't in some way traumatized by either being undiagnosed or being treated incorrectly. There's not enough people who weren't traumatized in their childhood for us to be able to differentiate what symptoms are trauma responses and what are inherent to autism. I think that could be a special edition episode of this podcast. <laughs> like, I think there's enough material to get into a whole episode. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, the one that really comes to mind is, is masking. I would consider it a symptom of both ADHD and autism. That's sort of when you act neurotypical. You try to fit better into what they expect people to act like. And that is definitely not inherent. It is in response to how society, how our community treats us as individuals. We are taught that how we're behaving is abnormal and it is not okay, so we have to cover that up. And it's not until recently, until after my diagnosis and until after I gained a better support system that I have begun like unmasking and unlearning, unlearning the belief that the way I behave isn't okay. Once I was diagnosed, that pretty much any kind of like little emotional response that I had that uh, the adults didn't necessarily like if I wanted some privacy or if I just wanted to, you know, be to myself for a little bit, they automatically were like, no, that's autism. We can't let that happen. So they would like interrogate me to share my feelings with them for the longest time. So like, I didn't actually talk to my therapist until I was 16. I just kind of sat there because I was so residually upset with my guidance counselor in elementary school that I just didn't trust anyone. And then it took me so long to get even today like i'm just now getting comfortable asking for help explaining like hey i'm having a bad day like i just need a little more time with this or i just need you to explain this differently because i'm so set in the expectation that if i display any sign of neurodivergency or a need that a neurotypical person wouldn't have that they will then target me to fix it somehow instead of actually trying to help and I think at this point we should define what neurodivergent is. Being neurodivergent means that you have a brain structure or brain chemistry that fundamentally, often genetically, like from birth, differentiates from the average brain. So this includes people with ADHD, autism, OCD, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, oh, dyslexia a lot of learning disorders. I think PTSD could also fit into this category. Neurodivergent is most commonly used to refer to just ADHD and autism. However, it also refers to a wider group of disorders that fall into this category. And neurotypical means that you do not have any of these disorders. The thing you were mentioning before, Vincent, I think that's something that I've seen a lot in responses to autism and the way that autism is commonly treated, that symptoms of autism that aren't really hurting anyone are treated as something that you have to get rid of or that you have to get accustomed to that so that you can fit into the neurotypical world. But there's not really a broader explanation of why fitting into the neurotypical world is important. An example is pressuring children with autism to make eye contact, regardless of whether making eye contact is actually necessary or eye valuable was be a much bigger part of life <laughs> like from what they told me i thought it was going to be the most important thing in the world i have not thought about making eye contact with a person in years <laughs> and were you pressured to make eye contact when you were younger yeah they're like why aren't you making eye contact i'm like i genuinely aren't i'm not thinking about it 
I have told teachers, you are wasting my time and score. <laughs> <laughs> and it was usually special ed teachers trying to treat my autism. Yeah. <laughs> Another example of this is pressuring autistic people to become more comfortable with loud noises, which once again, autistic people are fundamentally more sensitive to loud noises. It's a sensory processing disorder. That's just how their brains work. It's not going to be less loud to them. It's going to continue being as painful to them. You're just training them to sit through something that's painful. Yeah, it's like training us to grit our teeth and bear it. It really sucks to see where a lot of teachers and a lot of parents will want to treat autism by quote-unquote curing it when that should not be the goal. Our brains are, are inherently different from others and no matter how much you try to get us to act neurotypical and to fit into your mold we will never be cured of autism it is not something that needs curing and it's just really really sucks to see it breaks my heart so let's just talk about have you ever experienced ableism from your teachers i don't think there really was an opportunity for much ableism to happen. Well, you were just talking about how special ed teachers forced you to make eye contact. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> um, oh, okay. Well, if we're opening the door to that, I was pulled out of class a lot for emotional and social intervention. Whether or not I actually wanted to or not was not part of the equation whatsoever. And I, I think the biggest issue I had is that because of the way they treat disabled students, there's nowhere for a disabled student to voice any grievance because it's considered, oh, the IEP team, and it's everyone's on that team, everyone's supposedly working together, and they're all, they all report to each other. So if I were to bring up to a teacher like I did, I really don't like this other teacher in my IEP team, I don't trust her, I don't think that she's helping me, I, I, I get really stressed around her, they will report that to the rest of the IEP team and that teacher will call you into her office for two hours the next day to get you to admit that you don't like her. So it's really just, there's no accountability because outside of an annual meeting with the student's parents, there's no reporting back to the parents and the student has no say legally until they're 14, but realistically, they don't have a say until they're old enough to put their foot down. Can you elaborate at all on what you experienced when you were pulled out of class? Yeah, so I also was in a gifted program. I essentially had two separate IEPs. And as far as I know, two separate IEP teams, and ironically, they didn't really work well together at all. <laughs> so my school, and, and this actually became the subject of the lawsuit that was brought in my name, my school pretty much decided that any sort of intellectual, social, or educational disability was the same exact thing. So you had students with dyslexia learning about social skills and you had students with autism learning about definite articles and grammar. I, it's worth mentioning that I'm now three quarters of the way through a BA in linguistics. Clearly that wasn't a problem. So it, it was pretty much decided yeah, everyone with a disability, no matter what it was, you have the same special ed curriculum, regardless. And that would be done during class time. I, I think it's worth mentioning here that that's not how every school handles IEPs. I have another episode of this podcast where the guest says that she had much more individualized education and it was also optional for her. That would have, caused, that would have saved me so many problems. <laughs> if they just said, by the way, it's optional, so many problems would be solved. <laughs> so... This is sort of on the same topic. I've noticed that basically every neurodivergent student who I have spoken to has felt like there was a point in their education in which they were punished for having a disability, for symptoms of their disability or because they weren't acting the way the teachers felt wanted them to. And we've talked about several examples of that already, but are there any other times when you felt like that was happening to you? I mean... My school once didn't know how to deal with me after an autistic meltdown. So what had happened was that I locked myself in one of the private little bathrooms in like the elementary school classrooms of one of my favorite teachers that I trusted. And I just locked myself in there and I had and I just cried, spent some time alone because I was just overstimulated, too many people, too much going on. Like I just I needed time. 
they referred me to the Horsham Psychiatric Clinic. With the phrasing being used on the phone to my mother, they have one bed left, you should hurry. So we went to this clinic. And they're like, yeah, you're definitely not a candidate for inpatient admission. We don't know what the hell they were talking about. But if you'd like. <laughs> so they referred me to their partial program, which was an alternative school placement with students featuring uh, attempted homicide. Uh, and then me, who just cried in the bathroom. Yeah, um, so definitely felt a little bit punished <laughs> there. And then when I returned to the elementary school. What, did you go to the uh, partial? Unfortunately. Oh. And then beyond what happened while I was at Horsham, which is bad enough on its own, I returned to the elementary school, and then they still wondered why I didn't trust any of them. God, that sounds really traumatizing. It's like the call is coming from inside the house. Were you diagnosed at that point? I was diagnosed at that okay, point. Okay, so I feel like if you're... I only recently learned about autistic meltdowns like a year ago but i feel like you can just google like autism crying and it'll be like autistic meltdowns happen for a brief period of time and do not require hospitalization it's very weird to me that they didn't do that but also obviously the reason is because they didn't care enough to do that it's not that weird the, the explanation is ableism yeah <laughs> essentially the explanation for that is ableism and now moving on to part two. This was an exceptionally long part one, <laughs> but I think it was worth it. So now we're going to talk about what school would look like if it were made for people with autism or ADHD. Let's just start with instruction. Like how would instruction change if it were created for autistic students? Well, like I mentioned very early on, I did feel like a lack of stimulation was, and still is, something that I experience in, you know, all the way from elementary school to college still. There are professors who will just stand there and talk and not have any kind of PowerPoint or will use the same monotone voice. Some sort of understanding of how much stimulation is needed and making it engaging in that manner would be something good to see. I feel like it would be a little bit more student-directed, too. There'd be a lot more feedback going on between the students and the teacher. And also, I feel like it would be a bit more varied to better accommodate different learning styles. Yes, because our symptoms manifest in so many different ways and our needs then differ based on those. So it is important to have teachers who teach with the students in mind, not just the same cookie cutter syllabus and cookie cutter lecture, but accommodating the needs of the students. I have a theory, like a grand theory, of teachers with disabled students. This is based on my personal experience also, that it doesn't matter how good you are as a teacher not related to disabled students. It doesn't matter how hard you try. A teacher who's not trying hard, but also who isn't being like rude to their disabled students, is better than a teacher who is very educated and up on the latest teaching and everything and trying hard and respected who is not deliberately trying to accommodate disabled students. I've had teachers who were the heads of their department who accused me of lying about symptoms of my disability. And I've also had teachers, like one of my teachers in high school, put no effort whatsoever into classroom management. It was kind of ridiculous. And one of my friends who had ADHD was in her class and she was constantly just talking to the teacher back and forth while the teacher was trying to go through a PowerPoint. And she was constantly chiming in with her thoughts. And the teacher's like, oh, that's silly. Whatever, I guess I'll talk to you. And I honestly think that my friend was more engaged in that class. I think that helped her learn because finally she didn't have a teacher shutting her down whenever she tried to contribute. I appreciated that a lot. And I think that teachers who have like a very strict approach to classroom management, or at least who have, who try very hard. And I feel like when you have teachers who put a lot of effort in, into like curating their schedule can be kind of unflexible with the way that you need to learn. And I also feel like they can penalize students more when those students 
fall out of their expectation of the average student, and so that ends up penalizing disabled people specifically. Yeah, for sure. I keep coming back to the thought that in school, all throughout my schooling, teachers have penalized me even when I wanted to ask for help. I got shut down, I feel like. That kind of instilled this idea that, well, I shouldn't need to ask for help. I should just be good enough. And so now in college, when there's a lot more flexibility, like a lot more flexibility, and the professors are a lot more understanding in my experience, I still feel this guilt and this like shame of, oh, I shouldn't have to ask for help. I'm too embarrassed. And so then it leads to this cycle of, because I'm not asking for the help that I need, I am not doing as well as I could be in school, even though now I actually have the opportunity to. I feel like the best thing that I've ever had a professor do, and I do this, I'm designing a course for next semester, so I put this in my syllabus and I plan to continue putting it in syllabi that I make. She called it a general accommodation statement, which basically just said, life happens. If you have problems with life in this course, let me know as much as you want to and we'll work something out. (laughs) I saw a professor on Twitter post a syllabus and one of the things was a deadline policy and she had ADHD and she wrote, adults miss deadlines all the time. One of the lines in the syllabus was, I am currently a year behind on a journal article that I'm supposed to submit. And so she said, students also miss deadlines. That's to be expected. Everyone misses deadlines. Don't think of my deadlines as anything that can cause stress in your life. Deadlines can be very helpful for people with ADHD, but they can also be stressful. And if they're stressful or if you miss them, that's fine. Just make sure you get it to me in time that I can grade it before the class ends. And there were a couple other things in her syllabus. Maybe I'll put the tweet in the episode notes because I just loved this syllabus. That's something that appears a lot in, for instance, the book that I based this podcast off of, which is called Learning Outside the Lines. And I'll also put that book in the episode notes that accommodations that would be helpful for students with ADHD or students with autism can also be very helpful for neurotypical students. Neurotypical students can also have issues with deadlines. They can also be stressed out. They can also have had bad relationships with teachers that led them to not want to reach out for help. So making things easier for students who struggle with executive dysfunction as part of a disability also makes it easier for students who struggle with executive dysfunction because it's a part of the human experience. Yeah. So all this goes back to our ideal um, school experience would be something that allows for flexibility, that does have flexibility in the deadlines, and both, I think, the ability to reach out to teachers without the fear of judgment and the for teachers to reach out to us, just active communication between student and teacher rather than being afraid of, of possible like judgment or punishment. I have a very long rant about this. I, it's probably not that long. I have a rant about this <laughs> in the episode about ADHD and central auditory processing disorder. So if you want to hear more about this, please just go to that episode because otherwise I will start ranting about it right now. But yes, I think that teachers reaching out to students, it would be nice if that were a new norm. And do you guys have anything to say about what classwork would look like in a school that was created for autistic people? I mean, I'll go back to the same professor that had that statement in her syllabus. Her classwork was all simultaneously, like, there was a point to every assignment. Now, this was also part of the course. It was linguistic field work. So we all had our own little interests and research wants and needs. So all of our assignments were kind of like, do something with the sounds of the language or do something with the grammar. But we would get to pick kind of how we formatted it, how we did it, what we included, what we didn't. She would kind of just send it, she would send an email out for every assignment. And it's, here's the guidelines. If you're within these, that's good. If you're not, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) It, It was mostly just show what you know about this subject. And the way she graded was she would go through it and she said, okay, this makes sense. She said, you might want to explore this a little bit more, but she would never penalize you for for getting something. She would always give you a suggestion to improve it later. So I think that would be an important aspect. I second that. In terms of exams and testing, I think that for me personally, again, everybody has very individualized symptoms. I can't do tests that require memorization. So I think 
cutting those out entirely, having things be open book would make a lot of exams, I would actually be able to like complete them without <laughs> struggling. The expectation that we have to memorize every single term, and that's happened all throughout every grade of schooling I've had. It's just it almost, impo actually it is impossible for me as somebody with ADHD and memory issues and autism. So I think getting rid of exams that require memorization would be great. Something that I've talked about with some of my friends who are neurodivergent is that a lot of this should be sort of up to students because a lot of people, even autistic people, are very good at memorizing things and love exams and don't like when there's a big essay that they have to write at the end of the class. And so for them, they might prefer using exams that have memorization to other types of exams. Other students find that exams are very stressful for them and prefer to do like a project or an essay at the end of their classes. I feel like the biggest thing that would have to change isn't something particularly curricular or structural, but just you would need to have it staffed by a set of teachers who trust their students to communicate with them and who accept that kind of communication from their students. I, I feel like a lot of problems could be resolved if a teacher would just invite some feedback <laughs> or if a teacher would make it known that if you come to me for help, you will get help and you won't be judged. I wrote a story for the Center Daily Times one time about these exercise classes for adults with intellectual disabilities. And every move of every type of exercise, every like step in the workout routines that they were doing, there were three options for differing levels of abilities. And they didn't call them modifications. They called them variations. And they said that they chose that word very specifically because they didn't want people to feel like they were getting something easier than they needed. And also, every time that a variation was possible, they left it entirely up to the people in the class because learning to advocate for yourself and learning to choose something that's easier for yourself or that works better for you is a really important part of having a disability. And that really got me thinking that I was never taught to do that. I was never taught to, to ask for something that was easier for myself or to ask for something that worked better for me. And I think that that would be a really important part. Learning to advocate for yourself, being able to articulate your feelings and your needs and why it's important that you get something that's easier for you and learning that that's an option that you can ask for. I think that's something that would be really important to teach in any school for people with disabilities, but especially for people with autism. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the biggest takeaways is that no person with autism and no person with ADHD and no person with any kind of neurodiversity will experience it the exact same way. And trying to fit us into a binary or into a box is counterproductive, ultimately. So having the ability to decide how we want to be taught is kind of vital. It's going to benefit neurotypical students as well, but especially neurodivergent students would benefit from that. And mm -hmm. it's almost a necessity. Also, you guys were talking about how you didn't know what symptoms of your disability were. Like you didn't know the sensory parts of autism. For instance, Percy, you didn't know that the reason you were doodling was because that helped you focus. I feel like a school that was created with autistic students in mind would sort of talk about that, right? For sure. So a lot of treatment is done by neurotypical individuals, or at the very least, people who don't experience the disability you have. So like, I've never gone to a therapist that has ADHD that I know of. I think that not necessarily seeking out teachers who are autistic or who have ADHD, but I don't know how to phrase it. For example, my, my doctor, the doctor who diagnosed me with ADHD and who diagnosed my dad with ADHD has ADHD. Her own experience was able to help us because a neurotypical doctor wouldn't have recognized that. And I had a point here to make, but I don't know how to phrase it. Would it be like that if you don't experience the disability, you can't 
really explain it to students or their parents. Yes, exactly. So I'm not saying like every single teacher has to have our same disability, but that if we were to learn about what our disability is like and how it manifests, that sort of class, if in our hypothetical school we are going to make that a thing, that should definitely be taught by somebody who has experienced it themselves and who it's not just a hypothetical for them, but it is actually their lived experience and they can give us some like wisdom. Yeah, like I had a class in my school before I was in college where they would tell us study skills or how to be good at taking tests and stuff like that. And I feel like that sort of thing, it would be nice if they also talked about how to manage your disability. I mean, you're both in therapy right now, right? Learning how to manage your disability, paying for it with your own money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So is there anything else about the structure of classes or the way that things are handled that you think would change? I would just say have, like like we mentioned earlier, have it be less structured. Have the structure be kind of like Legos. Have it be able to be rebuilt based on the needs of the students or of the individual students. Obviously, it still needs a structure to an extent, but could I tell you exactly what that structure should be? No, because it would be different for every class or for mm-hmm. every student. I don't know why neurotypical teachers are obsessed with the idea that autistic people need structure. They're so obsessed with it. I had a teacher in elementary school tell me, like, we're going to change the schedule. Like, that's going to be hard for you. And I was like, no, it's not. Just tell me. I don't need to have a structure. I just need to feel like I have some sense of control. There's a distinction between these two things. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Having a substitute teacher is not the, the big deal they think it is. For, and for some people with autism, it might be a big deal, but not everybody experiences it in the same way. So the book that I mentioned earlier, Learning Outside the Lines, and it was written by someone with ADHD and then another person with dyslexia. And they said that project-based learning is probably the ideal mode of evaluation or instruction for students with ADHD. Do you agree with that? Yeah, as somebody with ADHD, it depends on what they mean. If they mean a long-term project that is over the course of an entire semester and, you know, you have to have check-ins and deadlines for that, I personally, in my personal experience, don't like those. But if it comes to, oh, write an essay about, you know, something instead of, oh, let's take a test about something, I would much prefer the essay. And that's just for me personally. I don't know if that answers your question or not. No, I definitely agree. When I was writing the syllabus for the course that I'm designing, I accidentally basically did that. So I, I didn't put any exams. I, I didn't. I had some like quizzes, but my intent was for them to be open-ended, very, what do you understand questions, not like, was this included in the jargon file or why it's tired? Like, no, I'm not going <laughs> to go that far. But I, I've definitely noticed that in classes where there's not like a full semester-long project but little check-in projects like oh we're gonna like take this concept and then apply it to something that is a lot more helpful than just writing about something to me yeah especially like with an exam you are just taking it in the course of like an hour maybe two hours and you have to just dump out all of the knowledge you already have whereas a project you get the chance to take it at your own pace and to use outside resources and not have to memorize everything and just being able to you know Outside of disability accommodations, I think that memory-based assessment is a very bad indicator of content understanding. And at the same time, I know personally for me, I'm sure I learn more when I'm asked to do a project, and I'm sure I gain a better understanding of that. On the other hand, sometimes I go into a class and I already know the material, and in those cases, having a project would be more work for me. And so in those cases, I like to just take an exam and be done with it. And I think that that's something that you can leave up to individual students because being in college and being disabled is very hard. And so sometimes you want the easy way out. And so project-based learning might be great for helping you actually learn concepts, but when it comes to your workload, sometimes it's best to keep it simple. Yeah, it would also, this occurs to me now that we're applying it to the concept of like college, it also depends on what the subject matter is. 
if it is something that I am passionate about and that I understand really well, I am going to want to do those projects. Whereas, you know what? Cut that part out. I just realized that's not true at all. Because, <laughs> because well, I'm thinking about it. Like, if it's something I don't understand at all, I am going to want to do a project. If it's something that I understand really well, I might. No, I still want to do a project because I want to. I'm passionate about it, and so I want to do a project. And I think it also depends. I'm not cutting that up because I mean, <laughs> that was a thought. I think it also depends on whether you feel up to it. When we were in the pandemic, and I had to learn from home, even if I was passionate about something, I was not up to spending a lot of my time on that because I was already exhausted from taking online classes. So it really depends on sort of your emotional state. It also depends on the professor and how well they sell the content and the project. I had a class where at the beginning we were like, oh, this is a cool little final project here. We get to do research and make a poster. And then by the end, someone literally typed into the Zoom chat, can we just have an exam? (laughs) (laughs) We were all in the group meet for the class, like someone say it, someone say it, and then someone (laughs) finally did it. And she just looked at me and she was like, can we just, no, we cannot have a final exam. (laughs) But yeah, in the beginning we were like, okay, we can do a By the end, we were just like, just... Just give us an exam. Bringing up the pandemic and the idea of your emotional ability and your mental ability to do projects or to do exams, something important to include in a syllabus or in a school system that accommodated people with ADHD and people with autism would be that our disability does fluctuate in how, quote unquote, disabled it makes us. There are days when I wake up and I'm like, I, I can't concentrate on anything. I can't finish any work. I'm having a bad day. And there are other days when I can actually function almost like a normal human being. And so that can also go back to a larger extent where there will be months when my ADHD or autism is worse, like quote unquote, worse than normal. And just that is something that would have to be kept in mind. And that would be accommodated by having these students make a lot of their educational choices for themselves. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also that in a system that was accommodating autistic students and ADHD students, you would be able to communicate that to your professors. Sometimes when I'm talking to professors, I will try to find anything other than my disability to blame stuff on or to ask for an excuse. I'll be like, well, I'm feeling kind of under the weather. I'll be like, oh no, it's it's that time of the month (laughs) or one time my sister was in the hospital and she she was fine and I'm sure that didn't help me do my work but also that was not my problem and so I was emailing professors like my sister is in the hospital I'm so sorry can we please can I miss class or can I have an extension on this that obviously wasn't the reason that I needed help but they didn't it was happening concurrently so that's just what I blamed it on. And Vincent, I remember you yeah, told this anecdote. I've definitely had a few stomach bugs that weren't stomach bugs. <laughs> but I, I feel like it's definitely a thing where it depends on the professor. It depends on your relationship with the professor. I sent out an email this morning that was due to unfortunate circumstances involving a dog and a psychiatrist. I now have a CAPS appointment during our lecture and won't be there. I've also sent an email to a professor that very plainly said, my dog died and my psychiatrist said they can't help me anymore. I'll see you on Thursday. (laughs) I've had that professor for six semesters, so we're past the point of vague politeness. (laughs) But, you know, it's definitely something where eventually you just, at least for me, I got to a point where I'm like, okay, their opinion is not my concern anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I, at least in my case, like, I have the accommodation. They can't tell me no. If they judge me for it, like, that's their own problem. Um, also, if it's within the syllabus, like, they can't really do much. If they're like, well, I don't see the reason to miss class. I'm like, well, that's, your opinion is not my concern mm-hmm. <laughs> anymore. My mom passed away my freshman year of high school, and I just had a really hard time with it last year. It was, like, six years after it happened, and I emailed one professor and I said yeah I have a stomach bug I'm not coming to class and then I emailed another professor that was like who I had had for multiple semesters and I was like it's been six years since my mom died I can't do this today and I was actually I knew he wouldn't be upset but there was a part of me that's like you know that's like not a good reason to miss class it was six years ago 
I was almost judging myself. I've experienced kind of almost the exact same, sort of the opposite. So it was, you know, a year or two after my, my mom died. We have different moms, for the record. Um, <laughs> a year or two after my mom died, I just, I was having, I was overwhelmed with homework. I was just, I couldn't do it that day. I asked my dad, like, can I stay home from school? And I didn't say why. And he said, oh, because of, you know, it's the anniversary of your mom dying. And I was like, yes, that's why. And it's a similar thing where there's just the shame of being neurodivergent where I don't want to admit that that's the problem. I will say, oh, I had a stomach bug. Or even if I do admit, oh, it's because I have ADHD, but I'm getting treatment for it. It's just mm-hmm. the, the shame of all of it. I did another episode with a student whose disability is that she gets a lot of migraines. And she said that sometimes when she's having like difficulty with her mental health and she can't do something, she will blame it on migraines instead. She does sort of the opposite where she's like, my disability is preventing me from doing this, even though really it's just that she has depression or something. And she's said that she has to like sort of guess which excuse like mental health or disability will be more acceptable to whoever she's talking to she'll be like this person seems like they actually aren't going to take my health problems seriously so i'll tell them that it's mental health or this person does not seem to know anything about mental health so i'm just going to tell them that i got a migraine and it's sort of perverse that we have to guess at what people will be willing to accommodate but life hack <laughs> develop two problems and then be able to blame it on one or the other <laughs> yeah <laughs> life hack if your problem isn't convincing enough just make a bigger problem <laughs> <laughs> life hack have a relative who gets hospitalized a lot <laughs> so you mentioned percy remote learning earlier how do you guys feel about remote learning it depends on the course and depends on the professor Depends on my mood. It depends on my mood. It comes back to um, being understimulated during a course. It sometimes worsens with online learning because, you know, I have this device right in front of me, and I can go on Google, and I can look at other things, and, uh, oh, no, before you know it, I have been tuning out the professor for the past 20 minutes, and I don't know what's happening. But at that same time, on a bad day where I am overwhelmed mental health-wise or disability-wise or anything, I can stay in bed on my phone and still have the lecture up and still get attendance. It's just, there are pros and cons. Yeah, no, if I have the energy to get to campus, usually I prefer on-campus learning. If I don't have the energy to get to campus, online learning is a great alternative. <laughs> yes, I. it all comes full circle where having the flexibility and the option of, I can't get out of bed today, I need to be online, that would be great. But ultimately, it is a lot harder for a lot of students with ADHD and autism to learn that way. I will say I'm a big fan of virtual office hours because they're a lot less intimidating than going to an actual office. I have one professor who I'm meeting with tomorrow to discuss my accommodations who I pretty much was like, I can set up a Zoom room. Can we do this? Like, I can do Zoom on 2.30, but I can't do it in person because I have to run to another meeting. And he's like... Can you come to Pond Lab next Wednesday? And I was like, yes, I can come to Pond Lab next Wednesday, but why? (laughs) (laughs) And do you have any other feelings about, like, technology? It can make school a lot more accommodating. But it can also, if it is forced in, you know, an extreme circumstance, like, say, a worldwide pandemic, if it is the only option and it is the teachers are not trained to do online learning or to use technology... (laughs) at all it can be difficult and not ideal (laughs) i would also like to voice vocal opposition to exam proctoring software get out of my personal space this is my laptop (laughs) go away okay so wrapping up part two are there any other thoughts you have about what a school for autistic people or people with adhd would look like i want to be able to use some kind of fidget toy in class and not be judged for it it's a very small thing but having to you know play with like the ends of my sleeves because bringing something a soft stuffed animal or like a tangle would be you know seen as infantile when for me it is just it just does help me that would be a very small thing but would be something i would like to be considered we have this here at penn state but add drop week my high school did not have that drop week. You were expected to have your classes selected by prior April. 
I think it's really helpful to vet a class or a professor before you commit to taking that class. So that could trickle down to K through 12, I would think. Okay, so I think that wraps up part two. So part three is talking about how you cope within the current system. So outside of your accommodations, are there any strategies that you use or any outside help that you use to navigate college? Adderall. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, I am prescribed Adderall and I take it um, now that I have been prescribed it. Having a strong support system also helps. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I try to go home in the, in the middle of the day if I can. I'm a commuter, so I live off campus. Tuesday, Thursday is a little bit hard, but Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I usually am able to get back to my apartment and make lunch in my own kitchen, which is a nice break from you know seeing a bunch of people and walking around campus. And at least on Monday and Wednesday, my second class is after four, so transportation services doesn't care where I park. So... For me, it's really helpful to just be able to go home, and then when I come to my last class, it's really just a two-minute walk, and it doesn't feel as daunting having class from 11 in the morning to 6 o'clock at night when I have that break in between. Both of you have said you have therapists, right? Is there anything that your therapist has taught you or that you've worked on with them that's helped you in college? I'm still working on it. I... My previous therapist, she really helped me with my anxiety, my depression, my self-esteem, but she did not specialize in ADHD at all. So although she helped me a lot in so many different areas, that was one thing she couldn't offer me, I guess. So now I'm seeing a therapist who does specialize in ADHD, and ultimately it's just been a lot of giving myself more of a break. Like I was saying earlier, I feel, oh, I don't really need these accommodations. I'm like taking up space and I'm putting myself down sort of. Ultimately, a lot of what my therapist is teaching me is to unlearn that internalized ableism, that internalized cruelty to myself that teachers in the past gave me as somebody who was neurodivergent. I now give that to myself, that, that sort of negativity. So my therapist is helping me work through that and just give, give myself a break, let myself have ADHD, let myself experience my disability and don't feel this internalized shame for it. In terms of coping with having ADHD and with being bad at deadlines and being autistic and having sensory issues, that, again, I'm still working on that one, but ultimately it is something that my medication actually helps a lot with. And uh, it's just a balancing act of, and it's, it's, a, it's a constant process. It's not like one day I'm going to wake up and be like, I've got it all down. I can, I can do this. I forgive myself for having ADHD. I forgive myself for being autistic. I'm, I'm good to go. It's, it's and up and down, and it's a constant process. I've definitely been working on the same thing. What's really scary for me is that I did actually wake up like that a few weeks ago, and I'm afraid that it's going to change. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to wake up one day and it's all going to go away like it was some kind of weird fever dream. But the biggest thing my therapist has told me on multiple occasions is that it's okay to just not be okay sometimes. Like, we had a whole session one time where we started on the premise of, oh, I'm going to try to forgive my guidance counselor from elementary school for all the problems she caused me. And by the end of the session, we had pivoted to, you know, it's okay that I'm a little bit pissed off. <laughs> and that it's not a bad thing to just have emotions that exist. And being able to feel those and let those into your life. And that you don't have to separate your disability and your symptoms from your productive life. Because I felt like for the longest time I was trying to deal with all of my autism and depression and all of that while simultaneously trying to function as a completely normal and neuro- and neurotypical college student. And it was like I was trying to put the energy of being two people into one and kind of learning that it's okay to just be a neurodivergent college student with different needs than some people and not having to compartmentalize. Are there any physical tools or apps or schedules or something that you guys have found works really well with your disability, like any fidget toys or calendars or whatever? For me, I I pick up my fingers a lot. So having, like I'm doing it right now because I don't have anything else to fidget with. So having something like a tangle where I can just fidget with it, something like that really helps. Having sometimes something soft really helps me sensory-wise. Also another technically falls under physical tool is 
some people will say, oh, this is only anecdotal, but like anecdotally, this happens to me with my ADHD medicine. If I have a juice or something that's very high in vitamin C, my ADHD medicine will not work. So I guess that's kind of a, just something I really wanted to mention is that anecdotally, if I have something high in vitamin C, or like adsorbic acid or citric acid, my ADHD medicine will cease to work if they're in my stomach at the same time. So do you guys have any advice for talking to professors when it's difficult? Yeah, all I can say is ask if you can do it during ad drop week, do it during ad drop week. But other than that, just communicate and hope, unfortunately, that's the best you can do today. Yeah, it is just so difficult to predict how a professor will respond, especially when you have this anxiety about, oh, man, I shouldn't even be asking at all. They're just going to say no. You won't know until you try, so... And if you're at a school that requires them to put something about disability in the syllabus, pay attention to how they talk about that on syllabus day. Because mm-hmm. I've definitely had my worries put to rest by the way a professor has addressed that section of the syllabus. Sometimes it can either give you a little heads up, like this might not go too well for you. Other times it can be like, okay, you're competent. You can definitely email this professor about it and they will not have any questions. I feel like the majority of the time when I hear professors read the disability part of the syllabus, the vibe I get is they really haven't thought about this at all. That's the main one I get. I'm like, is this professor going to be cool? Is this professor going to say something extra? And then they read it pretty much the same way they read the don't plagiarize things section. Yeah, like it's just in there because it's required to be there, not because they actually care about it. So is there any advice that you would give to other students who also have autism or ADHD? I already kind of said this, but don't don't be afraid to ask for help. It is so much easier said than done. But well, the worst case scenario, they'll just say no. Best case scenario, you'll get the help that you actually need. And the step before that, do admit to yourself that you do need help and that it is okay to ask for help. Yeah, definitely ask for help and let yourself have good days and bad days. If you're having a bad day and you're spending the entire day trying to fight whatever it is that's bothering you, whether that's sensory overload or depression or whatever, it's going to be 10 times worse than if you just said, you know what, today is not the day and I'm going to take care of myself. So let yourself take care of yourself because often that can turn a three-day depressive episode into a one-day depressive episode, I found. If you just, instead of trying to push it off or fight it, you just say, today's not the day. I'm just going to let myself relax. And what do you wish professors knew about ADHD and autism? I don't not care about your class. In fact, oftentimes I care a lot about your class. It's just that my brain doesn't work to get your assignments done and to do well on your quizzes. I always worry so much that I'm being disrespectful by being neurodivergent and by displaying that neurodivergency in my schoolwork or lack thereof. For any professor with a neurodivergent student or a neurotypical student, be open to communication and be as flexible as you can, realizing that even though not everyone has a disability, the students that do might have their good and bad days and the students that don't might have something happen in the middle of the semester that requires attention that they might not be able to get documentation for right away. So talk to your students, and if a student comes to you and asks for help, the best thing you can do is just ask what you can do. This isn't just pertaining to autism or ADHD. I just realized that I haven't said it on any of the other episodes, but I wish that professors would consider that just because something is on our accommodations letter doesn't mean that's the only thing that we need. And sometimes I wish professors would ask just, Is there anything else I can do? Is there anything beyond this that you need that isn't on your letter? Are there any resources like books or documentaries or social media accounts that you would offer for either people who want to learn more about autism and ADHD or for people who do have autism and ADHD? I think this is one you recommended to me, actually. It was an Instagram account. Oh, I remember this. Yes. Was it Autistic Cats? Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) For some reason, they haven't posted anything in, like, two months. Like, since I told you that, they just stopped posting. 
Okay, well, never mind then. Yeah, no, I'm still recommending it. Since November, yeah, yeah, I'm still going to recommend it, though. Okay. The Autistic Cats, just, like, scroll through their back catalog because they're not posting right now. But if you scroll through all the posts they have on Instagram or Twitter, it's you learn so much. Yeah, definitely. I'm, like, trying to think because I know I follow ADHD social media accounts. And I'm I follow so many people on TikTok, and I don't remember any of yeah. their names. Um, <laughs> I, follow, I follow an Instagram account that posts autistic tiktoks so i guess i would recommend that actually autistic tiktoks <laughs> some of them are just kind of joking and really funny but a lot of them are kind of insightful and interesting so i have some just in the back of my head first of all the book learning outside the lines which i have already plugged and i will probably plug in every episode second of all renee brooks she's at black girl lost keys on social media she's an adhd coach and by following her, I also learned about all of the other ADHD accounts that I follow because she's very involved in the community. But also her blog has a lot of information about ADHD, especially from the black woman's perspective. Then there's Danny Donovan, especially on Instagram. He makes really cute cartoons about ADHD, but also they're about how emotionally it can affect you. And I will put all of these in the episode notes. Well, this has been Beyond Accommodations at Disability U. I'm Christina Baker. If you'd like more information about the topics discussed today, please check out this podcast's website and make sure to listen to the other episodes. As a reminder, this podcast is intended to be one part of a larger conversation about disability in education and disability in American life. I hope you keep listening.